Going into combat, gonna need great stats, the DM is on fire and I've got a great axe, the cleric just won't heal us, we told him to do it, but he's got a hammer and he wants to use it, we're all gonna die. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Bardic Inquisition podcast. I am your host, Vince, and today I've got a little surprise for you. Uh, It's not really a surprise if you looked at the title. You probably saw what it was. It's Combat Secrets, and I've got two top tens. That's right, 20 tips to help you do better in combat in Dungeons & Dragons 5th Edition. And I'm going to kind of separate them into two lists. I've got one that is more tailored uh, to specific classes or archetypes. And then the second one is going to be a general list that everybody can kind of uh, make use of. So here we go. Let's get right into it. Let's start with the tailored list first. And then we'll just kind of dive into the general list after that. And I'm going to do this top 10 format, so we'll start with number 10, and let's get right into it. Apologies in advance up front here because I realized after making these lists that it's a little heavier on the melee side. Now, I did include some tips for spellcasters, but I did realize after I made the list that I made it a little bit heavier on the martial side of things since they tend to be more combat focused most of the time. So bear with me uh, as we get into this list, but let's go ahead and get started. And again, for melee classes, number 10, melee classes carry ranged options. I cannot stress this enough. Now, I know you might be built for melee combat, and that is great, it's fantastic, and it is very much a needed role. But sometimes the enemies are out of reach, or sometimes you're fighting a fire elemental And every time you hit them and you're within five feet, you take some damage. So it's a good idea to usually carry either some javelins or, if you have the decks for it, uh, a crossbow or a shortbow. Or even if you don't have decks, some kind of bow or crossbow would not be a bad idea, as long as you have something in case they're a little bit too far away or if, you know, just attacking them with your regular melee weapons, your battle axes, your short swords... Whatever it is that you use, if that's not an option, you're kind of going to need that backup option. But, moving on with number 9. Rogues 
try to hide before combat. Now, this might not always be an option, but if, say, you're talking with the enemy before combat, maybe the bard or the paladin is trying to negotiate with the enemy, if your character's kind of just in the background, you might as well take advantage of that opportunity and maybe hide under a bed or a desk or whatever there might be in a dungeon. Maybe hide in the bushes if you're outside, if there are bushes around. You know, find something that you can hide behind if the opportunity presents itself. Now, again, I understand this won't always be an option. Sometimes you're fighting in an open field, or sometimes there's just nothing nearby, or maybe you're the one trying to negotiate with the enemy. So if it's not an option, then obviously don't. But if it is an option, take advantage of that opportunity. But now on to my number eight, which is specifically for barbarians. Barbarians, pack some alchemist fire. Now, if you don't know what this is, I am not too surprised because I think a lot of people don't even realize this is a thing that exists in the player's handbook, or maybe they see it once when they're going through the list of starting equipment, and they probably forget about it because, let's be honest, nobody uses alchemist's fire. But barbarians, you should. And in case you're wondering what it does... Allow me to explain. Alchemist's Fire is a consumable piece of adventuring gear. It allows you to, as an action, make a ranged attack using the Alchemist's Fire as an improvised weapon, and on a hit, the target takes 1d4 fire damage at the start of each of its turns. Now, they can choose to take an action to make a DC 10 dexterity check to get out of this, but we're not using it on the enemies. That's right, toss that bad boy up in the air, let it shatter on your head, and never worry about having to maintain your rage again. Now, of course, consult your DM before you do this, because they might be not really cool with the idea of you attacking yourself with the alchemist's fire, but it's a thing, and I think most DMs will be okay with it. Now, moving away from melee, but not quite to spellcaster category yet, I have something for the ranged attackers. And when I say that, I mean people that attack with ranged weapons. But this one, my number seven, is ranged attackers pack poisons. Now, depending on your game and your DM, this may be more or less useful. But even just using the basic poison straight out of the player's handbook, you can get three uses out of one vial of poison if you just coat your ammunition with it. Now, I know it's only a d4 damage, and the con save that they make is pretty weak, but in early game, you at least get a decent amount of damage out of it, and in the late game, you can actually just afford all of the basic poison in the world, and you can just coat every attack, so it's just a little extra damage on every single attack you get, or at least a little extra potential damage on every single attack you get. But all that being said, if your DM uses more expanded rules on poisons, that's even better because there's actually some really good poisons in the DMG. But we're going back to the melee with my number six. Melee users don't sleep on the shove action. And this is especially relevant if you have extra attack. Because if you didn't know, you can use one of your attacks you do the shove action, and then just follow up with your extra attacks with hitting with a normal melee weapon. 
And this is very, very useful if you have other martial classes, specifically melee classes in the party. Because that way, while the enemy's on the ground, everyone can just come up and gang up on them and get advantage. Plus, as a little added bonus, it makes it a lot harder for the enemy to run away. I mean, first off, they already have to disengage or potentially suffer an attack of opportunity, but they also have to use half of their movement speed just to stand up. But finally, one for spellcasters, and this one is specifically for all you support units out there, slash healers. And that's my number five, healers avoid healing in combat. Now, this one sounds controversial because what is a healer? They're there to heal, right? But think about it this way. If you are healing someone every turn and the enemy is attacking that same person every turn, you're basically just in an unending loop of having to heal and they attack and do damage and then you have to heal again and you're basically just wasting your turns. If you instead use that same action that you would to heal to either buff your units or to potentially crowd control the enemy, you'll save yourself a lot more action economy. Now this is not a golden rule. Sometimes somebody goes down and yes, you need to healing word that person to get them back up and fighting. Or sometimes the whole party is hurting really bad because they got hit by an AoE. Maybe like a fireball from the enemy spellcaster or maybe a dragon's breath weapon. But either way, if the party is hurting badly enough and you really need to heal, do it. Do it. By all means, do it. But if you don't need to heal in combat, wait until afterwards. That way you can make use of some more efficient healing spells, say like Prayer of Healing, and you're not burning through so many spell slots. But back to the melee for my number four, and this one is specifically for all you frontliners out there, you tanks of the party, as some people call them. And that is number four, frontliners, protect your casters. Now, this one might seem like a bit of a given, because as a frontliner, as the tank of the party, you're supposed to be kind of protecting the party from everybody else. But... This one is specifically that if you have the choice between protecting, say, the rogue or protecting the cleric or the wizard, protect the cleric or wizard instead. And if the rogue goes down, it's, yes, still bad, but it's less bad. The reason I say this is twofold, actually. And the first reason is actually because their armor kinda sucks. Let's be honest, no armor is a lot worse than light armor or medium armor. Unless, of course, you are a monk or a barbarian. Or lizard folk. Or a tortle. Or a draconic origin sorcerer. Or any cleric that can wear heavy armor. But I digress. Anyway, their armor sucks. That's reason number one. Reason number two is this. The casters are there to either A, crowd control the enemy, or B, support the rest of the team. So in essence, if they go down, the whole team is a lot worse off for it. But speaking of going down, this is one that will prevent an entire party from going down, and that's my number three, melee units especially, but this goes for everyone, don't cluster up, especially, especially against casters or dragons. 
I have actually seen this one in action a few times. Uh, either I'll be running a spellcaster or a hellhound or a dragon or something with some kind of breath weapon or AoE like a fireball. But it is crazy how often this comes into play. When you're going against something and you know or suspect that they have area of effect attacks, don't cluster up. Spread out so that way the dragon can't hit everyone with one single fire breath. And I know what you're thinking, this really does sound like an obvious one, but I've seen it too many times, there is a reason it is this high on the list. It's just important to keep in the back of your mind when you're playing D&D. But, on to number two. Casters. This one's for you. Shape the environment to fit your needs. There are a plethora of spells that sole purpose is to shape the environment, such as all of the wall spells, Entangle, Fog Cloud, kind of, Mold Earth, Spike Growth, and that's just a few off the top of my head. But guys, these spells exist for a reason. I know they're not as flashy as Fireball, and they don't exactly just directly get the job done like Hold Person or Banishment, but these spells are very useful for keeping either the enemies away from you or keeping them in a certain area so that your other allies can take care of them more efficiently. But finally, we reach the top of this specifically tailored list for my number one. And this one is, again, for melee units. I am so sorry, casters. Uh, next time, if I make another list, I will try to keep you guys more in mind. Number one, take advantage of those flanking rules. Now, this one might seem like kind of a cop-out, and it might not even be relevant at certain tables where the DM does not use flanking rules. However, I've seen it too many times where you'll have a couple of marshals attacking the same unit, and one will be sitting at 12, and the other one sitting at 9, and for one reason or another, they both just refuse to move from where they are. Now, maybe this is just me, maybe this doesn't happen at other people's tables, but I have seen it happen, and I feel like this is important enough to be my number one. So guys, if applicable, take advantage of those flanking rules. But that is all for the more tailored top 10. On to my second top 10, which is a more general list. So hopefully, casters and everyone else that I may have left out, you will find something on this list helpful for you. Let us jump right into number one, and that is know your enemy. Now, don't get me wrong, I am not suggesting metagaming. I'm not suggesting looking at the monster manual. I am suggesting using the clues that you have in-game to better fight the enemies that you're fighting. An easy example of this would be to use the vampire. If you know you're fighting a vampire... Obviously, you're going to use holy water, or you're going to use garlic. But another example would be something like an ogre. Now, ogres are tall, so you could always find yourself in a situation where you can squeeze through, say, a cave entrance or something that an ogre could not squeeze through. Or, secondarily, you could also take advantage of their lack of intellect. Ogres are notoriously dumb. 
And if you set some kind of trap for them, the chances are they're going to walk right into it. Or as another example, say if you're fighting something that flies, get underneath a tree or something that has some kind of roof over your head. But moving on, number nine, don't forget about the hold action option. Do you ever have that one situation where you want to use an ability or a certain spell, but now it's just not the time for it? And maybe you're like, man, if only I were going later in the turn, I could use this thing better. Well, don't forget, you can actually hold your action. Now, in case you didn't know, you have to know what you're going to be doing, and you have to know what's going to trigger that thing, and announce them both to your DM before you decide to do this. And also note that it does use your action for that turn, and your reaction for whenever you choose to activate the thing that you're doing. But it is an option, and a lot of times it's just the right move. And this actually reminds me about a time when I was a new DM, and this actually would have been the optimal move to do. However, neither myself nor the players at the time knew that this was an option, but it would have been great. So, the story goes, my players were fighting their way through a stronghold that had been taken over by orcs. Now, in one of the rooms, there was an ambush waiting for the party. Luckily for them, they discovered the ambush in there before they could get attacked. This, of course, caused the enemy to go ahead and attack them anyways, and initiative was rolled. The cleric, who was wearing heavy armor, decided that it would be a good idea for him to block the doorway and have another character behind him give him healing potions had he taken a hit. As there were four enemy orcs attacking them, this was very likely to happen. Unfortunately, the bard, who was the one who ended up doing this, did not have anything to do on their first turn because we didn't know that holding your action was an option. And this ended up leading to a little bit of a feel-bad moment, but it was totally preventable, and, well, we know better now. So, on to my number eight. And this one's a big one. Don't attack charmed or sleeping enemies. Now, if all of them are charmed or sleeping, that's a different story. But if the bard, for example, uses hypnotic pattern and takes three people out of the fight, and there are two other people on the other side of the room, attack them instead. Don't bother those charmed and or sleeping people. Now, the reason this is so important is because, well, action economy. Action economy is what gets you from start to finish with as few casualties as possible. Basically, the more turns you have and the fewer turns your enemies have, the better. And this will come up again later with another tip. But, let's go ahead and move on to the next one. Number seven, and this is kind of going back to one that I mentioned earlier in the podcast, and this is make use of the environment. Maybe you're fighting on an uneven ground and you can get up to a high place and start sniping some enemies. Or perhaps you are fighting next to a cliffside where you can just push enemies off. Either way, find a way to use the environment if possible, because a lot of times this will save you a lot of time and resources in the battle. And as a small added bonus, if your DM sees you making use of their environments like this, 
they might be inspired to make their future fights more interesting. But on to my number six, and this one's kind of in the same lines. Take advantage of forced or influenced movement. Are you just one enemy short of having the entire group of enemies in fireball range? Well, if you have a buddy that has either gusts of wind or dissonant whispers or something that forces the enemy to move in a certain direction, you can easily use this to your advantage to put them all within fireball range. Or going back to making use of the environment, you could just straight up gust of wind somebody off of a cliff. Or you could always dissonant whispers someone to make them run away from your melee units and suffer attacks of opportunity. But moving away from the shenanigans and into my top 5 with number 5, make a mental note of when the target reaches bloodied. Now this could technically be considered metagaming, but I feel like this one is a little bit more justifiable as your character would be able to visibly see if someone looks like they're in bad shape. And this is also only really useful if your DM is the kind to tell you if a unit is at half health or bloodied. But the reasoning here is relatively simple in that if you know when a unit reaches half health, you have a pretty good idea of when they reach zero health. And to expand on this reasoning further, if you know roughly how much health the enemy has left, you can kind of plan your attacks as a group accordingly. And this one actually kind of ties into my number four, which is focus down targets. Again, this all goes back to action economy. So if you spend the time attacking every unit, you're going to take a lot longer to finish that battle, and those enemies are going to get a lot more attacks off on you than if you were to just focus down each enemy one at a time, going in order, that way your enemies have less attacks that they can make, and you save a lot of spell slots for healing, for example, and you save a lot of time. But which enemies do you attack first? Well, I'm glad you asked, because that's actually my number three. Spellcasters. Be aware of them and take them down. And this one's going to follow a similar line of logic as to why the frontliners should be protecting your spellcasters. Look, spellcasters can really mess up a fight. They can cast Entangle and get all your melee units all caught up in one area. They can cast Fireball and potentially take out a lot of your clustered up allies. Spellcasters can be very dangerous, and that's the reason that you need to, you need to take them out if possible. Now, in the event that you cannot reach them, which is entirely possible because a lot of times where there is a spellcaster, there are melee units to protect them. But if you can focus down the couple of guys that are in the way and get to the spellcaster, you're going to be better off for it. Or if the party has ranged units, they can basically have them take them out and the rest of the party can just focus on the other enemies. Now these last two things on the list are kind of higher level things that are not necessarily things that you're doing on the battlefield per se but they're things that will help you when it comes to combat. And my number two is know your abilities and know your allies' abilities. 
Now, this one for some people is kind of going to seem like homework. And it is. It is homework. Because honestly, who wants to learn somebody else's character? You made your character, and that's because you wanted to play that. But your allies, however, are different people, and they should be able to keep track of their own abilities, right? And that is true. Yes, they should be able to keep track of their own abilities, and oftentimes they're going to be able to do that. However, when it comes to making strategies with your allies, it's a lot easier if you just know what your allies can do, what they're capable of, and even what their weaknesses are. So to wrap this one up, if you can learn your abilities as well as your allies' abilities, you will be better off for it. And finally, my number one, and I feel like this is the most important thing for strategizing in combat, and that is simply to communicate. I have seen a lot of combats, and one thing that I've noticed with a lot of people is that when it comes to their turn, they might know what they're doing, and they'll do the thing that they're thinking of in their head. However, a lot of times what they don't do is tell their allies what they're planning. And this can lead to some degree of confusion. Like, for example, maybe the bard casts sleep on a group of enemies, and maybe two enemies fall asleep. Then the very same round, the rogue takes their turn and just starts stabbing the sleeping enemies instead of the other enemies that are still up and moving about and attacking the party. Now, I'm not saying that strategy needs to be discussed on every single turn of combat. However, maybe at the beginning of each round, you can talk about what you intend to do on your turn, and then everybody can kind of plan from there. And say you don't know what your allies are capable of. Well, this is the perfect time to find that out. Because the bottom line is this, and this basically encompasses everything that I've said today, more most things that I've said today. If you work together, your combats will be a lot easier than if everyone's doing their own thing. But that is going to do it for me today. I really do hope that I provided some helpful information for you on combat, and I hope you guys take this stuff all into consideration the next time you go into combat. But that's enough fighting, let's go ahead and move on into the outro and get you guys out of here. Alright guys, thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Bardic Inquisition. If you have any questions, feel free to send an email to bardicinquisition at yahoo.com. And if you really like the show and want to support what I do here, you can now donate on Patreon at patreon.com slash bardicinquisition. Also, find me on Twitter at bardinquisition. But that's enough out of me for this week. You guys take care and keep playing D&D.
This podcast contains clips from Crunk Night, Our Story Begins, Dragon and Toast, Malicious, and Unwritten Return, all by Kevin McLeod.